0: Hey, it's Jason. Welcome to another Real Life Theology podcast. In this episode, we're going to hear from David Young one more time in a series that we've been doing where we select messages from a sermon series he preached called Invincible. In this message, we hear David talk about how it's really easy to see our faith start to drift. When we're surrounded by a culture that's growing increasingly more hostile to Christian beliefs, despite its warning signs to the hostile culture around us, I hope you find this podcast encouraging, and I hope it helps you stand convicted in the teachings of Jesus. Let's listen in now.
1: You'll be glad to know this is the second to last in this sermon series we're calling Invincible. I'll start with a story from Larry Klein. My friend preaches in Knoxville. We were at an event together about a month or so ago, and he told the story of a friend of his who owned a tire shop. This is when they lived in Florida, owned a tire shop in Florida that had specialty tires. So his favorite thing to do was to get this enormous inner tube out of a tire and go sit out on the beach uh, near Miami and just while the hours away, lying in this inner tube. According to Larry, one time he was there with his family. He was lying in the inner tube, several hours went by and the family realized they hadn't seen him in hours. So they start going up and down the beach, and they begin to panic because they realize they have not seen him anywhere. They're looking out in the water. They don't see him in the water. Any evidence that the inner tube is now floating on the surface, and he's gone. So they eventually go to a lifeguard, and lifeguard has these really powerful binoculars, and he looks out. This poor man had fallen asleep on the inner tube, and he had floated halfway to Cuba, He was so far out, they had to call the Coast Guard, which sent a cutter out to uh, rescue the guy who was from a distance doing this in his inner tube. And the moral of the story is, if you don't pay attention and the currents are strong, you drift. We started looking at Hebrews chapter 13 last week, which is the conclusion of a long letter sent to remind us of the dangers of drifting. So back in the second chapter of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer who's writing to these Jewish Christians who've been maybe 20 or 30 years on of being Christian, and they're, they're facing hardship, they're in something of a hostile culture, and they're considering drifting back into Judaism. And the Hebrew writer says this, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift Away, He was concerned that they would drift, not simply abandon, not many of us just turn our backs on our upbringing or just one day wake up and say, I'm done with all of that. Now I'm going to do this. What happens to many of us instead is, bit by bit, gradually, we drift away. And it's especially easy to do in a hostile culture. That is, you just start drifting. You accommodate the values of the people with whom you work. You come home from work, you're exhausted, and television is filled with all these uh, programs that might be slight compromises to your faith, but, you know, you're so tired and you deserve a Netflix binge, and so you just allow yourself to have maybe some entertainment you shouldn't have, and your mind begins to Drift. Or you have a son or a daughter and they come home and they tell you that they're no longer going to live the way you raised them. And suddenly you're challenged to think, now how serious was I about that when maybe my relationship to my own family member is at risk? And the real danger for Christians, as I've said all along, in a hostile culture is compromise or acculturation, if you will, or acclimation, or to use a Hebrew writer's term, drifting. So what I want to do in this lesson today is to vaccinate you because I'm not sure you've had the vaccination yet. I want to vaccinate you against drifting. And we're going to start here. Don't put your Christian principles up for sale because actually one of the greatest causes of spiritual drift is selfishness. It's money in a lot of ways. Let's read the verse and then I'll make a comment or two about it. Here's what Hebrews 13. So it actually be to your advantage to have a Bible open and in your lap or, you know, open it up on your phone. We're going to look at Hebrews 13. We looked at the first four verses last week. We're just going to look at the next four or five today. They're almost bullet points. That, so he's at his last chapter, Hebrews 13 is, and he's just sort of bullet pointing ways that we survive a hostile culture. So we can almost go verse by verse and come up with a different bullet point. First, he says, keep your lives free from the love of money. I just want to say this because I don't, I don't want to be misheard. He doesn't say that it's, there's something wrong with having wealth. I need to say that in a church that's fairly wealthy. It's not having the wealth. It's loving the wealth. That's the problem. If you can't go home and find five of your favorite things and look at them and say, I could live without you, then you're probably in trouble. That's actually a good exercise. This is a little sidebar, but here's a good exercise. Go home and pick five of your favorite things, stare them in the eye and say, I could live without you. I'm not talking about your family. I'm talking about your toys. (laughs) Go home and look at that SUV, if you will, or go home and look at your favorite antique or whatever it is. Look it in the eye and say, I seriously could live without you. So it's not having the wealth, that's the problem, it's loving the wealth. So he says, keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Tell you a quick story. It's of 2 nonprofits. Both of them started at the end of a war. The first... You know it as first China Children's Fund, then Christian Children's Fund, and now Child Fund International. It was started by Calvert Clark, who was a Presbyterian missionary, who saw at the end of the Sino-Japanese War in the 1930s, all these orphans. And he came home, he was a gifted fundraiser. He said, I think if I collect a little bit from a lot of people, we can save the lives of these orphans. He kind of invented that adopt-a-child program that some of you have participated in. Well, at first it was China Children's Fund, and then as they got outside of China, it became Christian Children's Fund, and many of us probably gave money. If you're old enough, you'll remember Sally Struthers on those commercials in the 1970s and 80s. This was the organization she was representing. Well, he came to this crossroads, or his his, uh, uh, nonprofit did, when certain foundations said to him, look, We're willing to give, in some cases, millions of dollars, but we don't want it to go to an explicitly Christian fund because that kind of stains our brand. And so his board got together and they decided we're going to drop the Christian part and became instead Child Fund International. Child Fund International at one point was one of the largest Christian ministries in the world. By the way, it's still successful and there's no telling how many millions of lives they've helped. So I'm not knocking them, but what I can tell you is they gave up the Christian part. For the foundations. At the same time, uh, many of you are familiar with Compassion International who came to Murfreesboro a couple of years ago. We hosted them here. They started in the 1950s when another missionary saw all these orphans after the Korean War and he said, I just can't stand to watch these babies die. So he came back and did something very similar to what ChildFund International did. Started as a very Christian organization. They actually work with the local church. So Compassion International doesn't work with children unless they can do it through a local church. So if there's no local church, they just don't go there yet. They wait for a church. They reached the same crossroads. Julie and I traveled with one of the VPs for uh, Compassion International a couple of years ago, and I asked him how they kept the Christian part of their organization when so many other Christian organizations are drifting. He said, well, we had the same questions come up that everyone else ca- uh, has. And our board got together and prayed and fasted for about a year. And we had a foundation that was offering us millions of dollars if we would downplay the Christian part. And we finally said to them, we are Christian. We've always been Christian. We will always be Christian. And if we lose every penny, we'll depend upon the Lord. That's why Compassion International baptizes hundreds of people every single weak because their children not only get an education, not only get good housing, not only get health care, not only get food, they get Jesus too. So the question I want you to ask is, how much are your Christian principles worth? How much are they worth? Because at some point you're going to be asked to negotiate them. It's going to happen to your ministry. May happen at your job. You know, already a lot of Christian schools, you're already having to, be, uh, having to ask this question. I had a lunch with the president of Christian school a, a couple of years ago. We were talking about all the changes, the hostile changes that are occurring. And he was making the observation that most of their grants and foundations are tied somehow to the federal government or to at least the approval of certain, uh, certain principles that they don't want to approve of. Student loan system backed by the federal government. And he's anticipating the federal government perhaps laying down rules that you can't get a student loan if you go to certain colleges that don't agree with what the federal government wants you to agree with. They're looking at the possibility of losing other donors because of their Christian principles. And I asked him, what's your plan? What are you doing? He said, we are already making plans for how to live totally on our own money because he said, we're not gonna compromise our Christian positions. Now, that's at the same time that a lot of Christian organizations are doing away with the Jesus part in order to get the money part. I'm not trying to be too hard on these organizations. These are difficult decisions. I'm not trying to suggest that if I were in their shoes, I would know exactly what to do. But I am telling you this, if the Christian values can be sold for money, there's something wrong. And the same can be said about our careers. And I know what you must be thinking. I would think this if I were you. I would think it's real easy for David Young to stand up, take all these big, bold stands. He gets a raise when he does it. I get fired when I do it. And by the way, it's, the raise part's not true, but the other part is true. That is, I, I know my job's real different from yours. That's one reason why last Monday night I did a series that you can go online and you can get this, download it, listen to it. I talked about how it's not as straightforward as it might seem. There are actually a lot of ways that we can continue in our jobs and navigate a hostile culture. I really would encourage you to listen to that because it's not so clear as, or it's not so demanding as to say, I'm going to do these things, fire me if you don't like it. There's actually a lot of space for us, even in a hostile culture. But I do want to say at the end of the day, don't sell your Christian principles. There is no amount of money that's worth standing for Jesus Christ. All right, number two, I'm vaccinating you against drift. Stand firm on the scriptures. So verse seven, we're just working through Hebrews 13. Verse seven says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And when you first read this, it might sound like he's talking about the elders of your church. And actually a little bit later in chapter 13, he is talking about the elders of his church. And he says, obey them, submit to them and make their work a joy. By the way, um, every one of us needs to, you need to ask those questions about your relationship with your elders in this church. But in this verse, I think he's not really talking about elders because he says, remember them as though they were something past. And then he says, consider the outcome of the way of life. These are people who are already gone. And when you go back to chapter 2, I think he makes it clear who he's talking about. He speaks about the angels who revealed the Old Testament, but then he says, we have a message from the Lord and it was confirmed by those who heard him. I think the Hebrew writers are simply saying, pay attention to the apostles and the prophets who were given the keys of the kingdom. So put another way, chapter four of the same letter, He says this, the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword, penetrating the dividing of the soul, spirit, joints, marrow, judging the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. What I think the Hebrew writer is saying here is take a stand on the preached word of God that comes from the apostles. And we just want to make sure that we understand this. You don't have anything written by Jesus unless the whole thing was written by Jesus. That is, Jesus inspired the apostles. He actually sent the apostles out as his ambassadors. And he says to them, whatever you bind on earth, I'm going to bind in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth, I'm going to loose in heaven. That is, the writings of the apostles are the final say in the Christian faith. You don't get the opportunity to negotiate the Christian faith. It's not open for negotiation. Our hope points forward to the resurrection, but the truth stands firm on the writings of the apostles and the prophets, which means that we must always measure ourselves by what the scriptures say, not by our sentiment, not by our feelings, not by what the culture around us is saying. If the word of God doesn't make sense to you, it's because you're wrong. I mean, that's it. It's because you've been sensitized to a different way of life. So, what we want to do is take a firm stand on Scripture, and we need to understand the kinds of tricks that the evil one plays with us in order to undermine the Scriptures. Let me point out a few of these sleight of hands. I'm going to call them faithless sleight of hands. These are tricks that the evil one plays with the Bible. Because here's the deal. Not many people, as I said, not many people wake up and say, you know, I've just rejected the whole Bible. I think this is right. And everything the Bible says is wrong. That's not how it works. What usually happens is someone in our family starts to do something that's contrary to the Word of God. We love them so much That we think, well, I I can't lose them. Maybe the Word of God doesn't mean what it says. That's the first step. Maybe it doesn't mean what it says. Or those of you watching online, here's what will happen. Suddenly you'll realize your preacher hasn't mentioned some sin in months. It's radio silence. And you wonder why? Why? And the truth is, he or she may actually be reconsidering that truth. Then we enter into a period of dialogue. By the way, I just want to say, generally, at this point in my life, when I hear the word dialogue, mm, I hold on to my wallet because I think I know what's about to happen. The dialogue is usually insincere. It's usually intended to buy time to build critical mass. And then once someone has built their critical mass, now they turn against their past and they call their past whatever foul name they can call those traditions, those mean people back then. And then at some point, the view they held just yesterday is now an evil view. And in the process, we end up redefining words. Let me show you a few of those. So love now in North America means you'll accept anything I say about myself. If you don't accept anything I say about myself, you're not a loving person. That's actually building on the Word of God, but it's a distortion of, because in the Bible, love never rejoices in anything that's evil. Matter of fact, let me just show you this very famous verse that appears at every Dallas Cowboys football game, John three sixteen. Before, by the way, before it was the Dallas Cowboys football game, it was in the Bible. And here's what it says. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to affirm the sin of sinners so they could continue to live life as they wanted to live. That's not what John three sixteen says, but that's what Americans want it to say. Because in America, if I wake up today and say, I'm a woman, if I just feel like a woman this morning in America, you're a hateful person if you don't call me a woman. You just need to know that's not love. John 3.16 actually says something very opposite of this, which is that God gave his son not to affirm whatever I want to do, but to rescue me from myself. Jesus came to rescue me from my foolish decisions and my brokenness. Here it is in Galatians 6 and verse 1. If someone's caught in sin, what do we do? Affirm it? No, if someone's caught in sin, we do our best to help them. Reminding ourselves that we're all sinners in this together. But it's so important for us to remember that if you love a meth addict, you don't give a meth. You do the hard work of helping them escape that Addiction. And so, when the Bible uses the word love, we need to use that word rightly. Let me give you another word that's often misused. It's the word hate. You all know that because you're Christians, you're haters, right? We're now called hatred because if you disagree with anything I say about myself, you must be a hateful person. Two things you need to know. First of all, it's not hateful for me to say to a meth addict, stop taking meth. That's love. That's not hate. And second, you need to know that you're literally commanded to hate some things in the Bible. God hates a lot of things, and I'm supposed to hate things too. Here it is in Amos. Amos, who talks about justice and mercy, he says, hate everything that's evil. That hatred is actually part of the Christian faith. You're supposed to hate some things. Don't you hate racism? If you don't, you ought to. Don't you hate pedophilia? Don't you hate pornography? Don't you hate what people are doing to one another in this world? We're supposed to hate some things, not people, but actions. Here's another word that gets spun. Tolerance used to mean we'll create a safe space where everybody can live the kind of life that they think God has called them to live. Now tolerance means what? It means that you have to prove of anything I say about myself. You know, in the Bible, the word tolerance is often a bad word. Here it is in Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus says to one of the churches, my problem with you is your tolerance. Tolerance. You're tolerating sin. Tolerance there is not a good word. Even this word has come to mean the opposite. Diversity used to mean everyone is welcome here. Now diversity means everyone who believes exactly what I believe is welcome here. And if you don't believe what I believe here, you're not welcome here. It's like, what's going on? The whole world is flipping the words around. Everything seems to mean the opposite of what it was supposed to mean. Judgmentalism. Judgmental, judgmentalism used to be that used to mean that I was a traditionalist who condemned everybody who didn't agree with all of my particular views. Now, judgmentalism simply means I don't like your boundaries. But you need to know, in the Bible, we're actually taught to judge. In the very chapter where Jesus says, judge not, Matthew chapter 7, he goes on to say, watch out for evildoers, and here's how you'll know them. Look at their fruit, and you'll know who's doing right and who's doing wrong. We're commanded to do it there. What Jesus is condemning is not evaluating people's fruit. He's condemning unjust judgment, unfair judgment. That's why he says, don't look at a board in somebody else's eye, excuse me, a speck of dust in somebody else's eye when you got a board in your own. Here's one, 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2. Do you guys know that one day you are going to sit in judgment on the whole world? You Christians are going to sit in judgment on the whole world, according to 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 2. And the 12 apostles are going to sit on thrones while they judge. What I'm trying to do is just help us to see that for us to stand firm and to refuse to drift is for us not to go along with all the games that are being played with the language of the Bible. Let me give you a good attitude, good outlook for Scripture. As Isaiah is finishing up his book, he's speaking to the Israelites and he wants to say to the Israelites, you know who I really respect? This is God speaking. The one that I really like is the guy who is humble and contrite in his spirit and the person who trembles at my word. You know what that means? That means the person who doesn't play games with this book. The person who doesn't play games with this book and so if we're to stand firm and refuse to drift we're going to have to have a strong respect for the scriptures and that actually brings me to a point I, I can only spend a minute or two on and that is in order to stand firm on the word of god we have to have boundaries so we have a a young person here who's married now but when she was a student at MTSU, she joined a sorority. It's one of those like smart sororities for smart people. She was telling me about a sorority one time. and I said, I want to interview you about this sorority. And I did. She told me all about sorority. So it's a sorority of all these people who know what they're doing. They're all really smart and they're professional, all this. But she's telling me they actually have an officer in her sorority who's in charge of your conduct. This officer can throw you out of the sorority if you post something online criticizing another member of the sorority. Or if you say something that criticizes the sorority. If your grades start to drop, they throw you out. If somehow you create dissension or problems in the sorority, they toss you out. And I said to this young woman, I said, Why would you want to belong to something like that? And she said, Because I want a place that expects excellence. And I just kind of started thinking, Well, man, that sorority. Is more disciplined than the church is. They've got more discipline than we have. They've got higher boundaries than many of us have. So, I just want to talk just for half a second about why following Scriptures means that we have to have clear, high standards. Let me put it this way before you freak out. The standards are up here. We're all sinners. All of you are. There may be one 88-year-old woman who's not, but the rest of us… It's you. Here's what you do. You do not lower the standards for those of us who are down here. Instead, you keep the standards there and you take the time to love people up to the standards. That's what we do. We love people up to the standards. We repent. We forgive. We disciple. We show mercy. We walk alongside of. We carry one another's burdens. But we don't lower the standards. And sometimes we have to draw boundaries. So a text like this, if someone continues to sin and they won't repent, you just got to start treating them as someone who's on the outside. Romans 1, 16 to 17. If you've got people who cause divisions or put obstacles in the way of people, Paul says, you're going to have to keep away from them. First Thessalonians 5, 14. If you have lazy members and disruptive members You're probably going to have to sort of warn them, and a little bit later, you might have to stop associating with them. Titus 3 and verse 10, if someone's dividing the church, give them a warning or two. If they don't respond, have nothing to do with them. First Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, there's some guys committing this gross sexual sin in the church, and Paul says, what in the world are you proud of? You need to put this guy out. He's poison to your fellowship. He goes on to say, hand the guy over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, don't miss the last part of that verse because he says for the salvation of his soul. That is, good discipline is out of love. It's because you care about people. You want to protect the innocent and you want to wake up the guilty. Here it is again in chapter 5 and verse 11. When you have assembled, when you've got this guy and he refuses to repent, this isn't somebody who's trying to be right and they're just falling. This is somebody who says to heck with it. This is who I am. And you're going to have to accept it. Paul says, no, you can't do that. You're going to have to pass, uh, you're going to have to sort of well, not associate with them. And then Paul goes on to say, don't associate with someone who claims to be a brother and sister who lives in unrepentant sin and will not back down from their sin. And so in the book of Revelation, Jesus brags on churches for testing people who claim to have certain kind of knowledge. All of this, these boundaries are intended to accomplish one simple goal for the church. It's a goal we've already mentioned. God disciplines us like a good father does. Why? Why? So that you can share in God's holiness. And so, when we talk about being faithful to Scripture, remind ourselves that the boundaries and the standards are for our good. Amen. They're for our good. Okay, we're gonna start wrapping it up. Watch out for compromised Christianity. Here's the verse Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. I think the Hebrew writer, before he says what he says next, wants to make sure you know Jesus isn't changing. We don't get a better Jesus today than they got in the New Testament era or the Old Testament era. He never changes. What that means is that the Christian faith was once and for all delivered. It's not going to get better. You don't get a new and improved revelation. And then he goes on to say this. So don't be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Now for the Hebrew Christians who received this letter originally, their temptation was to go back to Judaism. That's where they've come from. Their compromise, their drift was to drift back into kosher foods as a means of salvation. Kosher eating's fine, but it's not as a means of salvation. And so the Hebrew writer says, don't fall for these strange teachings by eating ceremonial foods, which are of no benefit to those who do so. So that's not our temptation. Most of us are not tempted to drift into kosher eating. Right? Not many of you are, Um, but I'll tell you what you are tempted. You're tempted to to drift into here's a term I've I've really tried to avoid using this term, but today we got to use it. Into progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is the belief that the Bible is not really complete until we bring our own sentimentality and our own experience to it, and that sometimes our experiences and our sentiment are more important than what the Bible says. That's progressive Christianity. That's not a slur to say someone's a progressive Christian. Progressive Christians call themselves progressive. In other words, that's a self-title. That's something they like to call themselves. And I want you to know, progressive Christianity is the consummate drift of the Western church. It's a drift that says, maybe the Bible says this, but we don't have to believe it. Or I know the Bible says that, but we know a lot more today than the apostles knew. I heard this at a Church of Christ lecture. One of the best-known Church of Christ speakers got up and said, the Apostle Paul was dead wrong about this. This was one of our lectures. He was tragically wrong about that. He may have been wrong about this. He may have been wrong about that. And I just want to stop and say, wait a minute. You mean to tell me that you think you know more about Jesus and the Christian faith than the Apostle Paul knows. Think about that a moment. What if I were to say to y'all, I know more about Jesus than Paul knew. You, you, you ought to fire me. The day I say it, you need to fire me before the day is over with. Because I'm telling you so, I don't need an elder of amen in that. <laughs> why, why didn't you amen something else? Why that one? <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff in that sermon, Nick. You just amen that one. The apostle Paul literally knew Jesus. He says that he was taken up into heaven itself where he had conversations with God he can't even share with us. And you think that because I've got a cool haircut and some nice glasses and I sit at Starbucks and binge net on Netflix that I somehow know more about Jesus than Paul does? It's nonsense. It's just nonsense. But that's the temptation that so many of us have. Oh, this favorite blogger of mine, she's come out and she says, maybe the Bible's been wrong for all these 2,000 years. Don't fall for it. Don't fall for it, guys. Jesus doesn't change. When the Bible was written, it was the final contract between God and humans. Now, If you go to court over a contractual issue, a good judge might say, we're not sure how to interpret this line of the contract. So, it is true that we may not always agree on what the line of the contract actually means. We don't sometimes. But a good judge doesn't say, well, there's the contract over here, but I think we're going to go over there for a while. I'll make a judgment on something else. No, a contract is a contract and all the truth is in the four corners of that contract. When God gave us the word of God, we may not always agree on what it means, but we don't throw it out and say, well, I'm going to go this way instead. Not if you're faithful to Jesus, you don't do that. You can't do that. Alisa Childers, who spoke here last year, wrote a really good article several years ago, Signs That Your Church Might Be Going Progressive. Let me just read a couple of them. She says, you'll start to hear a lower view of Scripture. I want to read some of the call-outs she says you'll hear. Those of you, by the way, listening online, You'll start to hear this in your, at your church if they're going progressive. They'll say things like, well, the Bible was a very human book. Or the Apostle Paul was wrong about that. Or the biblical author simply didn't understand sexuality the same way we did. I've heard this one before. The Roman world didn't understand sexuality the same way we do. Therefore, what it teaches, the Bible teaches about sex can't be applied to today. That is the biggest set of nonsense I have ever heard. As I have said before, there's not much the Romans didn't know about sex, including a lot of stuff you don't know yet. Nero married a man as a woman. Then he married a man as a man. He understood all of it. The Roman world had every kind of sexual deviation that you can imagine. So when someone says, well, the Bible just didn't understand, and they stroke their beard and smoke their pipe. It's all lies. It's a diversion to get you to throw the contract out. She says, you'll hear feelings over facts. Here's an example. That Scripture just doesn't resume, resonate with me. Or my Jesus would never send somebody to hell. Which Jesus is that now? Is it the one who talks about hell 11 times in the New Testament? Which Jesus are you following? When all of a sudden we believe our sentiment and our feelings somehow are more important than the facts of the Bible, I just want to make sure you guys understand something. Hang on. (laughs) Facts don't care about your feelings. There is no steaming locomotive that cares about your feeling of invincibility when you step in front of it. It doesn't care. Here's a third essential Christian doctrines, you'll start to hear them being reinterpreted. So here's one. Again, I'm I'm not trying to make fun of people, but I guess I am. The trendy guy sitting in his Starbucks or his coffee shop and he suddenly decides, you know, the resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to be historical in order to be true. It's baloney. It's just nonsense. Don't listen to that nonsense. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead go to the lake. It's Sunday. What are you doing here? You're wasting your time if He wasn't raised from the dead. I'm just suggesting you'll start to hear these things. Uh, Here's one, you know, hell is the life we live here when we're in authentic persons. That is the biggest set of gibberish nonsense I've ever heard. Third, historic terms are inaccurately defined. God would never punish sinners. God is love. I've already told you, love has boundaries, or it's not love. Or we've misunderstood the Bible for the first 2,000 years. And now, those of us who sit at Starbucks after we've binged on Netflix, we understand it for the first time. Don't fall for the nonsense. Have I made the point now that the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and reconciliation redemption to social justice. Social justice matters. It's important. The gospel has a lot to say about it. But at the end of the day, remind yourself, Jesus came to save lost sinners. That's why he came. Anything that takes the place of that is a distraction from the mission of Jesus. Here's Jesus's website. uh, At Jesus's website, it starts by saying, here's what makes you unclean. Sexual sin, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. That's on Jesus' website. A couple of months ago, I went out and looked on the website of several mainline denominations in America. I don't want to call their names out because I'm not trying to target them. The opening page, a call for diversity, a call for the celebration of women's pastors. This is just one website. A proposal for how many bullets a clip can have in a gun. I just want you to imagine just a moment. Like I'm, I'm not pro or against gun. Y'all sort that out. Second Amendment's your worry, not mine. But you really think that a group of us ministers can get together and come up with Jesus' answer on how many bullets can go in a clip? Really? You want, your, you want your staff doing that? No, I think seven and one in the chamber. No, Jesus says five and one in the chamber. That's what's on this website of this, this church. Nowhere on this church is anything like any of these things because they become so distracted with the call of secularism, all of its charms, that they simply cannot make a stand for the gospel anymore. Meanwhile, while they're talking about how many bullets you can put in a clip, souls are being lost all I'm saying is progressive Christianity is a form of drift. And we'll end on this one because that's how the Hebrew letter, this section at least ends. Celebrate life as an outsider. Hey, at one point in your life, most of you probably wanted to be an outsider. You guys, before you went bald, you had long hair. You remember when you were 16? You had long hair. Why in the world did you have long hair when you were 16. My dad wouldn't let us have long hair, but we would sneak it. Like, I would comb it back when he saw me. And then when he wasn't watching, I'd pull it back over my ears. Because you know why? Because I wanted to look like a rebel because rebels were so cool. I wanted to be unique just like everybody else is. All I'm saying is if you want to be a good Christian, go back to the days when you were an outsider. Here's how the Hebrew writer puts it. Now, it's a, actually a very dense text, and you want me to unpack it, but I'll, I'll just give you a sentence interpretation. All he's saying is the high priest used to have to go outside the walls in order to expiate the sins of people. And since you follow Jesus, you're going to have to be an outsider. That's all he's saying. But it's pretty dense. I'm just going to jump down here. Jesus suffered outside the city gate. Calvary's outside the old walls of city of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for a city that is to come. And then he says, this is the language outsiders speak. You know what language outsiders speak? They sacrifice praise to God, lips that openly profess his name. They practice goodness and they share with others. Those are the sacrifices outside. So, I'm just going to say it again. We need to get used to being outsiders. We are a minority culture as Christians in a hostile majority. And probably the biggest threat we face, as I said before, is the threat of compromise, the threat of accommodation, the threat that comes when we start to act like the majority. Around us, the unbelieving majority around us, when we drift. So, next week we end the series. But this week, guys, I'm laying it out on you. Ask yourself the hard question. Go look in the mirror and ask yourself the hard question Am I following the Jesus who is or the Jesus that I want? So, the United Methodist Church is the second largest American denomination. Southern Baptist is the largest. But worldwide, there are probably something in the vicinity of 80, 80 million Methodists. And now the Methodist church is much bigger outside the U.S. than it is inside the U.S. The U, UMC in the U.S., United Methodist Church in the, uh, in the U.S. is about half conservative and half progressive. And I want to say something about the Methodist church. Uh, The churches of Christ owe a great debt to the Methodist churches. And actually, I think there are a lot of wonderful Methodist Christians. And many of you, some of you probably are. Many of you grew up in Methodist churches that taught the word of God, stood for the word of God. John Wesley was one of the greatest Christian heroes in my book who ever lived. But there's a strong urge in the American Methodist church to go to the left, And the elites especially are really pushing the Methodist church to go leftward. And so a lot of Methodists are having to make tough decisions. If you've got a Methodist background, you know exactly what I'm talking about. A couple of years ago, the worldwide Methodist church met in St. Louis to have a historic vote on the future of marriage in the Methodist church. On the one side were progressive, generally white, elite, liberal Methodists, who are pushing for a compromise on what the Bible teaches about marriage—one man, one woman—in a committed married relationship for life. On the other side were the worldwide Methodists who still believe strongly in Scripture. Many of them were Africans, bishops from the African Methodist churches. At one point, one of the African bishops was invited to speak, and he had already felt insulted by the way that these elites were talking about the African churches. It was, I'll I'll regret saying this, but there's so much arrogance in progressivism. Y'all excuse me for saying that. But there was just an arrogance against these African Christians from the whites. And there was an implied threat that if you like our funding, you're going to vote our way. So this bishop, a guy by the name of Jerry Kulai, he's a Methodist bishop, gives up. And I'm going to end with this. He decided to make it clear to the Methodist church where the Christians in Africa were going to stand on the matter of drifting. Can I quote it? We African Christians know of no compelling arguments for forsaking our church's understanding of Scripture and the teachings of the church universal. Please hear me when I say as graciously as I can, We Africans are not children in need of Western enlightenment when it comes to the church's sexual ethics. We do not need to hear a progressive U.S. bishop lecture us about our need to grow up. Let me assure you, we Africans have had to engage in this debate for many years, whether we like it or not. We stand with the global church, not a culturally liberal elite church in the U.S. So, if anyone is so naive or condescending to think that we would sell our birthright in Jesus Christ for U.S. dollars, they simply do not know us. Please understand me when I say that the vast majority of African United Methodists will never, ever trade Jesus and the truth of the Bible for money. That's the kind of conviction. That's the kind of conviction. That's the kind of conviction That will stand in hostile days.
0: What another great message from David Young. One of the things that stood out to the team here at Renew.org, we talked about the challenge that he presented early on in this message. Going into your home, finding five things that you highly value. Maybe it's good to take the challenge this week. Go find your prized possession, something that you use regularly. Maybe it's a pickleball racket because you are just hot into pickleball. Or maybe it's a computer or uh, maybe it's a big screen TV that you find yourself in front of every night, every weekend. Maybe it's your iPhone. And look at that thing and say to it, I can live without you. And then think about it. Could you really, would you be happy living without that thing? Anyways, we found that challenge thought provoking and hope you did too. Hope you enjoyed this. Thanks again for being here with us on the Real Life Theology Podcast.